0: Welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show, episode 27, a twice a month podcast about culture, theology, and leadership. I'm joined today by guest host Adam Griffin, who's our spiritual formation pastor at the Dallas campus. Matt, right now, is in Rome for an X29 conference. Been a fruitful time there. Look forward to having him back. On this episode, we'll be talking about life at the village, discussing our upcoming series on family discipleship and our brand new family discipleship guide, and then have a conversation with Eric Metaxas, where we're going to be talking about history, cultural engagement, and social justice. Adam, welcome to the show. Glad Thanks for having here. me, Josh. Yeah. Let's talk about family discipleship a little bit. This is something that really the elders have worked through uh, a, a pretty long and in-depth study on family discipleship and why family discipleship matters. Uh, you kind of helped spearhead a lot of that, uh, putting together the resources for that study. So let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about the burden behind it, uh, what we learned in that, and what this series will entail.
1: Yeah, great question, a great topic. I, I'm i telling you, it's a personal passion of mine, so I'm really grateful to the elders that they spent some time on it, as it is for a lot of our staff. And that's not just saying because a lot of our staff are parents themselves, but our next-gen staff who works very hard and does a tremendous job in the pouring into and the investing in the next generation, both through the curriculum and the programs we run. But really, uh, we're a church that believes we're We're not about attracting families here so that we can disciple them as a church, but rather uh, we want to see the primary discipleship done in the home by the parents. We want to see parents equipped. And so in the study that the elders did, we read things about current adolescent culture. We read things about uh, the state of the church as it used to be, as it is. We also read just a a lot of uh, what scripture has to say about the role of parents and the role of church. And through that, evaluate a little bit of the village church and how are we doing? How are parents doing? How are the dads doing? How are moms doing? And then how are we doing as a church supporting those spiritual orphans who don't have families who know the Lord or single moms and various situations where it may not be as easy to say, well, it just looks like this, like this nuclear family idea that we might have when we say the word family. And how does a church uh, invest and how does a church equip? Those are the things we spend a lot of time on. And from that, I think it's been very fruitful.
0: Let me ask you this: So, thinking about family discipleship, would you say the series is just for parents? Then this is a really important series specifically for parents, and everyone else can yeah. Kind I'd of take, say
1: singles don't even
0: come. Don't come. No, there's if you're no saying, need if you
1: don't have kids, or yeah, if you're if you're too good for this, yeah. For any reason, no. I'm So that's why a should a, why should a single come? No, that's a great question. So I'll tell you this: I was I was single until I was about uh, until for, you were married. Until I was married for, for most for the most part, I was and,
0: single. And, until, and I think it's obvious why we had you on the show. Well, I have a lot Your of insights. Issues. Are so keen. Adam was single <laughs> until he was married. I was single. continue. No, thank you, thank you, Josh. Thanks for a great setup. So it is really important. Uh, that we
1: cover this, because this is one of the more common questions. In particular, my campus, I work at the Dallas campus, and we're over half single. And so when we talk about family discipleship, there's a large portion of our church that some people question or some people automatically turn off or or say, man, this isn't for me. But I'll tell you, in my single days, uh, the same concepts that we're talking about in family discipleship, which are, what are the intentional times you're getting together with others to be held accountable, to be pressed to the Lord? What are the moments? What are the everyday things that we're doing to press each other to the Lord? And then what are the milestones? How do we How do we sell celebrate, commemorate significant times of the Lord's work in our lives, those are things I did as a single person, both in my own life with those who I roomed with, did life with, and then the role that I might play in other people's families. The other thing that a lot of us need to remember is that as, as much as many of us may not be married, or those of us who are married may not have kids, uh, most of us are still somebody's son or daughter. Most of us are still somebody's cousin or nephew or niece. And we play a role in a greater family. In fact, in the scripture, there's no, the words they use for family in scripture are are in no way, are not in no way. They do not mean what we mean when we say family. It's not nuclear family. It's oikos. It means your household. It's those who are you related to, those who you're doing life with. And so when we're talking about the family and how we disciple, we're talking about those you live Life with, And yes, we'll spend time talking about parents and the particular role they have and kids, what that looks like. But I'll tell you, there's so much um, work that needs to be done between grown sons, 20-year-old sons and daughters and their parents that this series, I'm really hopeful, will bring up some of those things that the Spirit will bring to the surface that needs to be worked on as far as our families go.
0: And if I think about singles in particular, and again, your your context in Dallas where 50% of the membership there is single – Another reason why a single member of the church should care about this series is because although their state in life may not right now uh, have them with kids, although there are some singles who do have children, and we have single parents all throughout the church, is recognizing that I'm a part of a greater thing here at this church, and this church is not just about me and my singleness, but I'm a part of a family. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a, a part of a membership, a community here. And my desire is to see this community, this family, this membership flourish. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that this membership family community flourishes is through the nurturing, care for, and discipleship of the children. Yeah. And so as a single member of the Village Church, my hope is this is that you would care about my kids. Yeah, and, and and clearly, it's not the same responsibility that I have over my four kids, you have over your three kids, but there is an investment that the singles have in this church in caring about those little ones, that they would hope that they're raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they're cared for and loved and brought up in the faith and in recognizing also that these little ones, they oftentimes represent one of the largest... Um, non-believing, regularly attending groups that come every week. That's right, and and so for the single, I would just plead to you um, to um, not discount where you are in your life, uh, and, and recognizing that that this singleness is is likely for a season, but recognizing that that in your singleness, in the season that you find yourself in, there is something beautiful that you're tethered to, which is a larger family structure here. And having a greater care and concern for that, and so uh, that's my hope for for singles here at the church as it relates to this particular series. But I, I do want to dive into some more of the particulars of the series, um, and and really the framework for family discipleship at the village. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast show, but. The the framework is this, uh, time, moments, and milestones. Right. So time, moments, and milestones. We've produced a family discipleship guide. It's going to be on our website for free when the sermon series launches uh, uh, on April 16th. And so I want to point that out as a resource available to anyone and everyone. Um, so, Adam, you, you basically wrote it. Um, I wrote a lot of it. You wrote a lot, a lot of it. Lot of it. Yeah. Uh, you had some help, but you were the key driver in this. Yes, sir. And um, – so let, let's talk a little bit more in depth about time, moments, and milestones. You, you hit on it briefly, but yeah. talk about that. Well,
1: I'll tell you, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to create something like this for our church and uh, for our culture, really, are a couple of things. We do believe there's a big deficiency in the way that we are leading our fams, families spiritually in America. Part of that is that a lot of us did not see it in our families. And so uh, you, you didn't grow up saying, oh, I'll just do what my parents did, but rather we're hearing from the Bible something that a lot of us didn't experience. And whereas uh, if you get married, there is a myriad of resources that you can read with your fiance to say, this will prepare us for marriage. And if you're a young married, here's a bunch of books or counselors that have spoken into uh, operating through marriage. But when it comes to the spiritual leadership of your home, when you find out that you are pregnant for the first time, or when you become a believer and you go home and you have kids in that home, what does it look like to be a Christian mom or a Christian dad? Man, there isn't a lot out there that we would just point to and say, here, this is something that you can walk through along alongside your spouse or alongside your community and really um, evaluate how you're doing, where you're at, and what does that look like? So what the guide does, similar to what we do in our home group curriculum, is it's it's sections that walk through questions that you walk through, hopefully, alongside the rest of your household. If you have older kids, they can walk through it with you or with your spouse or with your community that will dive into first modeling, what does your own genuine walk with the Lord look like? Because no one's asking you to fake your spirituality for the sake of your kids, but look at your own spiritual walk and then walks you through some questions about your rhythms in life. What does it look like to have time set aside to be in the Bible together with your family? And then secondly, moments we in the guide, uh, what it does is equip you with a lot of language we use at the village so that when a moment comes up, we can equip you with scriptures to run to or language we use here that hopefully gets you on the same page as a couple or as a household saying these, these are the kind of things we want to be saying to our kids over and over again. That they want to, we want to use them throughout the day, not, not planned ahead necessarily, but just when we have the opportunity. And then milestones, some questions that lead you through getting on the same page with how do we want to celebrate what? in the life of our child. And that's not always great things. It might be even things like, how do we commemorate uh, a death of a loved one in our family and point them to the gospel? Mm. How do we uh, celebrate birthdays or holidays? How do we celebrate a baptism? These kind of larger moments in a kid's life as as we're bringing them up as a church, not just as a nuclear family, how do we do those things together? And then how does that influence our neighborhood, our church, and our family? Those are all
0: things. That's fantastic. And again, all of this goes back to who we are as a people as a church and so you know our mission statement the village church exists to bring glory to God by making disciples right. and so our burden uh, the very reason that we believe we exist that God has called us into his family and called us and put us on a mission and that mission is to make disciples to the ends of the earth and and that certainly includes these little disciples uh, in our homes, and the little disciples that may not be in our home, but they 're in our church and yeah. so this is a discipleship burden that we have as as a church and and the resource is a product of that burden and so Adam want to thank you for your investment in the resource uh, i 'm grateful to the elders uh, for their burden in this the the work of all of our next generation staff and and as they have uh, put and labored a lot in this and and really want to commend our church to receive this and and, uh, dive in. I I am extremely excited about that. Also, just want to tell the listeners that the resource is available on the website. You can find it there, and this series will begin on April 16th and 17th. Now, uh, let's turn to a conversation with Eric Metaxas, where we're going to be talking about history, cultural engagement, and social justice. Well, we are honored to have Eric Metaxas on our show with us today. Eric is an author, speaker, and radio host. He's honestly written uh, too many books to mention here, but just to to name a few, some biographies on William Wilberforce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, most recently wrote a book called Miracles, another book called Seven Men and the Secret Secret of Their Greatness, Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness. Eric is a graduate of Yale University. He and his wife and daughter live together in Manhattan. You can listen to Eric regularly on the Eric Metaxas Show, and we are honored uh, to let you know that Eric will be with us for an upcoming forum at the Village Church called Defending Life, How the Local Church Can End Abortion, which will be live-streamed from the Village Church website. Eric, welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show.
2: Well, it is my privilege, thanks for having
1: me. You got it. so glad you're with us today, Eric. I'm going to jump right in. Uh, it's obvious through the books you've written, through the work that you've done, that you care a lot about history, that a, a lot of the stories you've done are experiences men and women have, um, have made a difference, and, and not even recently, but way back all the way till today. But could you talk a little bit about what initially got you into history, and then why do you think it's important that our people well, respect, it, it understand to, that?
2: It had to be the Lord, because I had nothing to do with it. I'm not even kidding. It's... Uh... I had no particular interest in history. Don't get me wrong, I was always interested in history, but it's not like if somebody talked to me, I I would say, I'm interested in history. But what happened was, kind of it's one of these God moments that, I don't say that lightly, where where if you're open to God steering you and you're praying every day, as we should, to say, Lord, guide me, because I don't know what I'm doing. You know what you created me for. I, I had written a book called Everything You Always Want to Know About God But Were Afraid to Ask, uh, which is apologetics. I wrote three books in that series, uh, everything else you want to know, everything you always want to know about God, the Jesus edition. So I wanted to communicate in a fun Q&A way the basics of our faith to, to anybody who is open-minded, anybody who maybe they go to a Catholic church uh, three times a, a year, and they don't really even know what they believe. There's so many Americans like in that category. They're not hostile to faith. And in that book... I just put a tiny thing about William Wilberforce as a man who had taken the Bible really seriously and therefore had changed the world. I mean, Wilberforce, because he took the Bible seriously, suddenly realizes the slave trade is an abomination. We cannot countenance this in Great Britain. We've got to do something. So I just mention it in the book. Well, little did I know what would happen. I was on CNN, which is itself miraculous. They don't have a a Christian apologist on CNN all that often, and I'm talking to a national TV audience, and the woman... Uh, Kira Phillips was, uh, you know, the anchor, and she's asking me these questions, and, and I was expecting really the tough questions. How can a, a good God allow all this evil and horrors in the world and whatever? And she was asking me, you know, uh, reasonable questions, and the last question was, what, what's about this on page such-and-such such about history? Tell us about this Wilberforce thing, you know? And I thought, what? Like, what? <laughs> I, you know, it's, I, it was just, just this tiny little thing I put in the book. Well, next thing I know, I'm talking to a national audience about Wilberforce, uh, on CNN. Yeah. And immediately after that, I get uh, contacted by Harper Collins. Uh, I knew one of the editors there and had probably sent the transcript of this uh, CNN interview, you know, to people on my email list. And he says, how would you like to write a biography of William Wilberforce? There's a movie coming out. It's the bicentennial of the uh, abolition of the slave trade, 1807 in Great Britain. How would you like to write a biography? I thought, a biography? I've never considered writing biography ever in my life. If somebody said, Eric, do you think you will ever write a biography? I would have said, I'm sure I won't. (laughs) Well, (laughs) when I was asked about this, I prayed about it. And this is one of these things where I felt clearly God wanted me to do this. I had written a children's book about Squanto, (laughs) which is kind of like a biography, a tiny, tiny, tiny version. (laughs) But I thought, I know the difference between truth and lies, between facts and non-facts. And I can just You know, go through and and tell the story just as I did in the Squanto book in 3,000 words or 2,000 words. I could do it in 100,000 words. It's just more work, but what an honor it would be to tell the story of Wilberforce. And so I told the story of Wilberforce in that book and the next thing you know, people are asking me, who are you going to write about next? And I wrote the Bonhoeffer book. I kind of fell into this, except I feel like the Lord tripped me, right? It's not like I fell. The Lord tripped me. And in the course of writing these two books on Bonhoeffer and Wilberforce, it became exceedingly painfully clear to me that God wants us to know history not all history but much history because it helps us see the present it's it's if hey, listen if scripture is history there's tons of history in scripture you read these stories and you get these lessons look what happened to this king look what happened to that king I mean it's pretty obvious that history is important to God but I didn't know that (laughs) and I wrote these books People loved the books, both of them were bestsellers, and you know, it changed my life. But it was not my intention. But in retrospect, it was clearly God's intention, because yeah. I would not be where I am today, I would not have the insights I have today into what's happening in America and the church and so on and so forth, if I hadn't written these books on Wilberforce. And Bonhoeffer. So that—that's the short answer to yeah. the question. Would well, you like the long answer? No, that's yeah, the long answer. Yeah. Would you like the short answer?
1: Well, a short question for you: If Josh wants somebody to write a biography on him, which he's always asking me I'm about, well, is right? Are you still? Are you taking
0: requests?
2: There's not enough money in the universe. But
0: <laughs> I'm sure but Harper, I'm Harper Collins it. will call shortly. <laughs> but but sure I'll consider though.
2: it. No, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a funny thing. I really—I'm um, working right now on a on a biography of Martin Luther. To come out with uh I'm, I'm sorry it is to come out in fifteen in two thousand seventeen is the five hundredth anniversary obviously of the fifteen seventeen beginning of the Reformation, nice. so sometime next year, my book on Martin Luther will come out. Uh, I suspect i won't write any more biographies i didn't really didn't think i 'd write this one on Martin Luther, but it's such a big big, big anniversary there's going to be such interest in who was the man who changed the world who Practically created the future. I mean, yeah, I, I love you, that. You, you cannot even begin to imagine the, the 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 ramifications. At least most people can I couldn't. When you start looking at his life, you think this. In fact, the working title of the book is "The Man Who Gave Birth to the Future," a story of the story of Martin Luther. I mean, it's it's just a bizarre uh, convergence of things that God used him to uh, really be the, the the vessel through whom. The whole world was changed. I mean, what we think about religious freedom and the, so many things came out of that. So I'm working on that right now, and I don't think I'm going to be writing any well, biographies awesome. after that. Well, it
1: sounds like you picked some some great men to write about, Wilberforce, Bonhoeffer, Luther. These are all world-changing guys. I know that uh, – I love that part of your story that you say, that God really uh, brought you into this, that it wasn't a willing, it wasn't something you chased. I mean, my introduction yeah, – people
2: think that's just religious Talk and trust me. I'm very. I, I've got my my antenna up for when people just say God this, God that. But when right. I say these things, I, I mean them very explicitly. That uh, I don't say that about God, yeah. God led me to you know choose a spinach salad for lunch, or that <laughs> God led me to wear a green sweater. I'm talking about some things where I know, at least I know that it, it really was God. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't happenstance. And that's important to me because you know life is short. You want to you want to be giving your talents to him.
1: Well, I'm grateful for that. And I know that in the in the writing of those books, it really has opened up avenues for you. My introduction to you, as many people's was, I'm sure, was the National Prayer Breakfast that you got to speak at, which is a phenomenal speech. If people haven't seen it, to go back and watch it, it's still moving. Your talk about uh, the unborn, your move for social justice in our time and day and how they connect to Bonhoeffer, how they connect to William Wilberforce and the work that has been done and the work that's before us right now. And I'd love to start shifting gears towards that for us. As you looked at you know our our current cultural climate, uh, the value of history that we have, and then we're looking forward towards um, what you're coming to speak about at the village in the in the next month or so. How do you see those those things together? Like a, the the history of what our issues, and then you look at the issues we're facing today. How does history speak into the current climate in America?
2: Well, first of all, you know history doesn't lie. When when something happens, and you know that it happened. The story of Wilberforce, for example, this is amazing. When you read uh, my book, Amazing Grace, the movie doesn't go into it because you can't. You only have two hours, and they kind of glance over the top of the political battle for the abolition of the slave trade, his greatest accomplishment. But he did so much else that it is mind-boggling. And so when you read it as history, you say, it is possible for one human being led by God to change the world. I mean, Wilberforce dramatically changed the world. He was used by God dramatically but when you read what he did and how tough it was, you, if you have an open mind, you realize that God really was in this. And if God could take an impossible situation and allow him to lead the battle against the slave trade, as an outspoken Christian doing this because of his faith, um, working with all kinds of people, people across the spectrum, theologically and politically, it gives us a model on how to deal with the entrenched evil in our own culture, which of course still exists. Uh, So what is the evil in our culture? I would say the murder of the unborn, the killing of the unborn, uh, is something that is very similar to the slave trade. And simply by knowing how Wilberforce dealt with it, uh, how he was loving to his enemies, how he still fought like crazy, he fought God's way, he understood it was God's battle, but he fought hard, he gave everything he had. Um, that helps us today to have hope for being able to defeat the giants of our generation that God has designed us and called us and created us to defeat. And the issue of life in America is, I would say, the number one issue, the number one parallel to the Wilberforce story. The Bonhoeffer story has other parallels with religious freedom and, and, and actually it's something I talk about everywhere I go. Very, very important. It's related to the abortion issue, but it's much bigger than that and and much scarier than that because uh, the heart of America has to do with religious freedom. It's something we've forgotten, and I get into that in my my new book, which is coming out um, in June.
0: Eric, let, let me ask you this. It, it sounds like you know you started writing a book a series of three books you said on apologetics, and you, you write this book with about Wilberforce. Move on to Bonhoeffer, and it, I, tell me if you if you see anything here. But it sounds like to me that there's a maybe an unsuspecting apologetic that is present in biographies um, that uh, maybe a little bit different than the presuppositional apologetics that other people take or those. Yeah, t- that, that's,
2: that's very astute and and very very well put. But you're exactly right. Uh, it was unintentional on my part, but I've sometimes been asked to give a talk on apologetics, and sometimes my my talk is uh, looking at these lives is a more powerful apologetic than arguing with somebody over whatever it is you know the apologetics uh, topic du jour, whether it's uh, evolution or the resurrection or the existence of God or good and evil. All those things are very very important. But somehow, particularly in our postmodern age, when you look at a life, the life can speak more powerfully in context than a lot of arguments can. There's something about human beings that responds to other human beings. That's been the way since the beginning of time. Plutarch's Lives, which was written in the first century, is a book of, about heroes, about how we can model our lives on heroes. The Bible is full of stories of, of good people and bad people, and there's something about human lives, how they communicate, God created us in his image, so he takes human beings uh, exceedingly importantly. It's not like we're secondary and ideas are more important. That's kind of like a, a non-biblical view of the world. Ideas are more important than people. The biblical view of the world is people are more important. And when you tell the stories of people, somehow it can communicate more fulsomely. It's almost like you communicate uh, analog versus digital. It's like like a, like a like an LP record has a richer sound than the... Than the the chopped-up digital bites, there's something about a human life which communicates more powerfully. It, or, or it's like if you're eating food versus taking vitamins, you get more from food, and, you know, we can't explain it, but there's more there. When you look at a life, you get a richer, uh, more dimensional apologetic that helps you to understand how to approach things. And I've often talked about that. Our lives are meant to be living apologetics. When people look at your life, they are either being led one direction or another. That's inevitable, and there are figures from history that make that really easy. When you read the life of Bonhoeffer, it will change your life. His life is so beautiful and powerful and amazing and and, and, and surrendered to God that when you read about his life without even thinking about it, it just changes your life. It's like kind of like we're influenced by the people we hang out with, that's, to me, what happens with some of these biographies, which is why I'm very intentional at this point about what biographies I'll sure. write, because I think that uh, they really do affect us. And I'm also hoping to inspire other people to write biographies. It's already happened. My friend Karen Swallow Pryor from right, right. Liberty University has written this wonderful book on Hannah Moore. It's terrific, and I'm just I'm thrilled. We need more of this stuff
0: yeah Karen was on our show uh, last year, talking about that book it was a It was a very, very encouraging conversation i as you think about so bonhoeffer sure you 've got Wilbur Force, but my guess is there are others who you have learned from along the way. Just curious personally. Uh, who, who else has influenced you, is, is specifically as it relates to cultural engagement, social justice issues? Uh, who do you look at and you think, you know what, this, this person, man or woman, has, has had a tremendous impact on Eric Metaxas? Well,
2: it's... it's- it's sort of hard to say. I would say probably Chuck Colson would be number one. He's number seven in my seven men. Uh, I, wrote, uh, I wrote two books, Seven Men and Seven Women. In each of them I have short biographies, you know, a chapter each of these seven lives, these great men and these great women. Uh, Chuck Colson is somebody that I knew personally, and especially early on in my walk, when I came to Faith in 1988, I started reading his books, and something about his life, living as a public figure, Yeah who is also a public Christian, but not just a Christian, talking about issues of law, talking about penal reform. You know, living in the world and not of the world, in a contemporary, uh, uh, in, in, in terms of contemporaries, so to speak, Chuck Colson would be number one. His love for Catholics, as an evangelical Protestant, his ability to work with Catholics, not to demonize them theologically, but to say, we've got a work to do together, we're brothers and sisters, let's put our theological differences aside. If the Church had done that in Germany uh, in the 1930s, uh, Wilberforce was able to do that uh, in the latter part of the 18th century. When when the Church understands what we're facing and is sensitive to the Holy Spirit, um, they we, we we don't judge each other by theology even though that's very very important we say right now we've got to work to we've got to end abortion and i'm going to work with i'll work with muslims i will work with mormons i will work with, i mean chuck colson really understood that there're certain times when being practical is the most important if you care about the unborn you're not going to worry about that guy's view of transubstantiation or the Filioque clause or you 're not there 's a time to focus on those things, and there 's a time to focus on those who are suffering and being killed and and we can work together Chuck colson, I would say it 's why I put him in the book um, seven men he 's a real personal hero to me, and it was my honor at the end of his life, to call him friend.
1: That's awesome. Let me ask you about something there, that, something else you just brought up. Uh, bringing it to current day and looking at what some of the men in history have been through, what they have faced, whether it's uh, governmental pressures, whether it's the Nazi Party or the, the party that advocated for slavery or the economic pressures you have to overcome in order to end the slave trade. Bring that to today, uh, men and women— uh, in our culture and in leadership, what are we having to face today when you're talking about uh, differences in politics, economic concerns, when it comes to facing social issues like abortion?
2: Well, this is this is the thing, is that, you know, first of all, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have an option whether to love your enemies. You've been commanded, uh, you may do it imperfectly, but you have to take that very seriously. Now, when I think of Cecile Richards, Uh, In the natural, I want to hate her, right? And then I realized, no, I'm a Christian, and I'm supposed to understand that apart from the grace of God, I am no different from her. So it is 100% sinful to even take that seriously mentally, right? It's like when God talks to us, he says, what you think, uh, your thoughts towards someone. So we need to catch ourselves when we're having a, a natural sinful thought about saying that person is my enemy. Jesus says, Eric... You were my enemy, uh, and I chose to love you and to reach out to you. So we have to figure out how do we fight a political battle at the same time that we pray for our enemies. We pray for Cecile Richards. We pray for the people on the other side of the issue, knowing that we are not morally any better than they are. We have to look at our own sin. If we cannot acknowledge our own sin and understand that I am just as broken as the worst person on the other side... There are some people who are unwilling to do that. If you're unwilling to do that, you're really a Pharisee. You're not following Jesus. And I really think that that's the number one thing that our witness has to be above board. People have to say, you know, that person understands that he is actually no better than I am. And that speaks powerfully when when we do that. And I think that we've done a lot of damage and that we have to try to figure out, you know, in the National Prayer Breakfast, I said... Uh, we've got to pray for those on the other side of the issue. We've got to recognize that. We've got to at least talk about that because the temptation is so powerful to hate those on the other side of this issue. Imagine what Wilberforce's temptation was to hate the people making tons of money off of the degradation and killing uh, and suffering of. Other human beings. He must have been so tempted, and there were people who were tempted, and they resorted to violence. And but he said, "No, we're Christians. We're going to fight God's battle." And I really think that that's that's kind of the number one thing, because then only then are you really free to fight. Uh, you, you otherwise we have no business uh, we have no business fighting unless we understand the battle belongs to God. It's my job to be obedient. He's commanded me to love my enemies. So that does not mean I agree with them. I will fight them. They're my political enemies, but they're not. Uh, they're not people that I can demonize. They're not people that I can put myself uh, as above in any moral way. That's, that's the biggest challenge. That's the biggest challenge for me, but I think we need to talk about that, and we need to figure out how we can do that, because if it's God's battle, you know, we've got to allow him to fight it, and he cannot fight it if we're being disobedient in that era. Er, yeah,
0: ultimately, area. it has to be, for the Christian, for sure, it has to be super political. It has to be above politics, because it is not... We're recognizing the limitations of politics; that politics oh, can only go so far, but the gospel can do what politics cannot do, and that's that's first and foremost the the badge, the identification, the banner that we wave is that well, that God that, loves. You no, know,
2: you're exactly right. I think that we've made sometimes made an idol of politics, and then other people on the other end of the spectrum say, "Oh, politics—that's not the gospel. I don't want anything to do with politics." We, we are, we're wrong in both ways. It's uh, a stewardship. You, you cannot, there is no gospel without politics. If somebody is suffering, and I have the ability to help that person, and it involves politics, God has commanded me Absolutely. as part of you know, living out the gospel to do something about that. But then again, if I make an idol of politics and I say it's all about politics, we really have to have discernment on that. I was just in Dallas, and I'll be back again with you all. I was there for a ministry called Bridge Builders, and they have an amazing view of how do we alleviate poverty in the Dallas area uh, with the gospel. How do we do it the gospel way? It is so powerful, and you realize that in that case, it has very little to do with who's in the White House or who's even the, the governor of Texas or the mayor of Dallas. It's something that the church is doing, understanding that we are called to fight this battle on behalf of our brothers and sisters for the Lord's glory, and so I... Uh, Michael Craven heads that up, and I, I was just so impressed that they have a really thoroughly balanced biblical view toward alleviating poverty and understanding that this is our calling, and that God calls us to this, and uh, he will do it if we'll obey.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned bridge builders. That, that was founded by a friend of mine who uh, his first and foremost love was the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that that drove his life to his final days, and um, and just I had the to privilege see... of meeting
2: his kids and oh, his yeah. parents and his Absolutely. wife the other day, and I was so I was so moved. I yeah. said, I've never seen anything yeah. quite like this, and I really believe that Michael Craven is God's man yeah. uh, to to lead this uh, right now. I was just so so impressed by the whole thing from soup to nuts. It was yeah. like it was it was very. Uh,
0: Clarifying. Oh, wow, that's that's encouraging. I'm I'm glad you had the opportunity to be there and experience that. I do want to shift the conversation uh, quickly. Just in our last few minutes, you got a book coming out. It's on religious liberty. It's called "If You Can Keep It: The Forgotten Promise of Religious Liberty." Tell us briefly about the heart of this book. What 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 the theme is? The role of history within it, and and for the the observing Christian, the the rhetoric of of religious liberty is. Uh, I'll just say this: I have heard it more recently than I've ever heard it in all of my life. And well, the, so, yeah,
2: and there's a reason for that. I'm yeah, sure tell Koulson us about was that. Talking about this five, ten years ago, I had no idea what he was talking about, and I finally figured out through writing the Bonhoeffer book that we are facing this in our generation, and that it is at the very heart of America. I mean, if you want, if you want to get global, okay, if you care about people around the world, you need to care about America. It's like, it's like the, the you know, talking about Israel you're not just talking about some nation. You're talking about a nation God has chosen for his purposes. He has blessed this nation for his purposes to bless other nations, not to bless America to bless America, to bless America to bless other nations. And so when you see religious freedom being abrogated in our generation, in this country, what I write about in this book, I write about all of America. It's really a book of history that you could give to anybody. It's not a religious book, and it's not a... a, Uh, a conservative book. It's really a book you can give to everybody, because I want every American to understand how this country works, how the founders created it, such that it can flourish. And Benjamin Franklin said, if you can keep it, in other words, if you, the American citizen, don't understand this, you will not be able to live this out, and the whole thing will end. It is ending now. As we talk on the phone, it is ending. This is not going to continue unless... Americans step up and understand what it is to be an American and live this out and for me mostly that means the church it's not only the church by far but the church has to lead and has to understand that a robust expression of Christian faith is something that every one of the founders including Jefferson and Franklin and and some of those who are portrayed today as more secular they were not more secular by the way but even those who were on that end of the spectrum they had no doubt zero doubt that at the very heart of American liberty and the flourishing of Republican government was this idea of a robust expression and living out of the Christian faith. They all agreed on it. In fact, they agreed on it so strongly that they barely articulated it. They didn't even feel the need, really, to talk about it, because everyone then took it for granted. You cannot have virtuous people without a religious population, and you cannot have self-government without a virtuous population. I got these ideas from Oz Guinness, the books uh, uh, dedicated to him. But the point is that self-government means I govern myself. Why do I govern myself? Why am I virtuous so that I would govern myself? I would not need some uh, powerful leader to govern me. Because I believe in a God who tells me not to steal, who tells me to be honest, who tells me to live in an upright way. Most Americans in 1776 got that on some fundamental level. Some were more religious than others. But the point is that there was a culture of that we have lost that. We're no longer teaching that to our kids. And I say, in the last 50 years, since I've been alive, we've not been teaching this. If we do not teach this, and this is why I would, I would give a free copy of this book to every American who can read. I am so passionate. You can hear it in my voice. I've Absolutely. never been more passionate about a book ever than I am about this book because I feel like our nation uh, and the, the freedom of the nations beyond America are hanging in the balance right now. And I, I just feel. Uh, We've got to get this message out. I'm desperate to get the message
0: out. Well, I'm grateful that you wrote the book. And and just for this conversation, I'm extremely thankful for both Adam and I are. And and I do want to point the listeners again just to the forum that we're going to be hosting. You're coming in on Friday, May 13th from 7 to 9 p.m. And the topic of that forum is Defending Life, How the Local Church Can End Abortion. And so uh, we're going to welcome you then, and we want to thank you now for coming on the show and spending some time with us, Eric.
2: Well, believe me, it's it's my privilege. If anybody wants to uh, communicate with me, see what I'm doing, they can go to my website. It's just my name, ericmetaxas.com. and I want to be shameless in asking people to pre-order this book. comes out in June. It's called If You Can Keep It, uh, the 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 the, the, sorry If You Can Keep It, the Forgotten Promise uh, of American Liberty. It is really. It's just where we are right now, and I'm I'm gonna I, I will be shameless about that because I feel like so much is at stake. But most of your listeners already know that. But I'm uh, really grateful for this opportunity.
0: Well, thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Bless you, brother. God bless you. Bye bye. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. On our next episode, we'll have on our own Jen Wilkin to discuss a few things, including some of her ideas from her forthcoming book, None Like Him, 10 Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. If you have a question, then let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. We'll be answering a handful on most episodes. We'll see you next time. God bless.